invite you to take a Bible and open to the book of Ruth, right after the book of Judges, right before the book of 1 Samuel. This is the fifth in a five-series, five-message series on this book. And we have been looking at what I think is one of, if not the most significant teachings of this book, which is that God works in and through ordinary things, ordinary situations, ordinary circumstances, both good and bad, and through ordinary human decisions, both good and bad, to accomplish outcomes that are extraordinary. I think it's a common tendency of ours to want God to show up and work in very miraculous ways. He does that. We know He does that. But most of the time, He doesn't. Instead, He does something which I think is potentially even more amazing working through very ordinary stuff and accomplishing things that we just marvel at. This feels really relevant to me today. Having been through this last week of praying for the Larson family, if you don't know, Joan Larson, uh, her husband Steve, passed into the presence of the Lord yesterday. Uh, Steve's father, Carl, passed in the presence of the Lord a couple of days before that. That's hard. That's very hard. But it's ordinary. Many of us were praying for miracles of healing. God said no. And it's tempting at times like that to think, well, then God didn't show up. And God didn't work. And that is absolutely not true. God was at work. God is at work. God is accomplishing extraordinary outcomes. And even when he says no to what we're asking for, we know that in Christ he always answers. And God chose to give Steve eternal healing rather than immediate healing. So this feels very relevant. This is a truth that we need to latch on to and hold on to, that God is at work. God is accomplishing extraordinary things through very ordinary, sometimes very difficult things. The end of chapter 3 was a bit of a cliffhanger. So I want to move right to the conclusion before we get there. In case you're new to the story, here's a quick recap. The book of Ruth is mainly about two widows, two women who experienced the loss of the most important men in their lives, an Israelite woman named Naomi who lost her husband and two sons, and her daughter-in-law Ruth who lost her husband. Ruth is not an Israelite. She's from the land of Moab. She comes from a nation that was an implacable enemy of the people of Israel. Their situation is 
desperate. Naomi owns some property, but she can't farm it. She can't use it. She doesn't have the resources to make a living off of it. Ruth, well, she left everything behind back in Moab to come with Naomi to the land of Israel. So their situation is desperate, and the best that Ruth can do is go out and glean leftover grain in the fields just to keep her and Naomi alive. Okay, They are just scraping by. But while doing this, Ruth meets a man named Boaz, who takes an interest in her and is very generous to her. And because Boaz turns out to be a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. Did you follow that? Naomi realizes that if Boaz will marry Ruth, her daughter-in-law, and buy the property, it will keep the land in the family, and the family name will not die out. That's a big deal at this time. So, Naomi gives Ruth some advice to go meet Boaz privately and effectively ask him to marry her. She does this, and he is very happy to oblige, but there is a problem. It turns out that according to the rules of the day, Boaz is not first in line. There's another guy who's first in line to buy the property and marry Ruth if he wants to. And so Boaz needs to check with him. And because we really like Boaz and Ruth, we're very interested to see what happens. So, chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate. Now, you need to know the town gate is not just a, a set of swinging doors. It's actually like a courtyard where people would come, there were seats there, and they would talk, they would transact business, or they would settle legal disputes. So Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned, this is the other guy, came along, and Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. This guy's wondering what's going on. Then Boaz said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you and I am next in line. <laughs> so Boaz puts it out there, and he says, deal or no deal? And we're screaming in our heads, no deal, no deal, don't do it. Because we don't want this guy to do it. We want Boaz to be the hero that marries Ruth. Boaz is doing what's right, though, and says, deal or no deal? And the guy says, I will redeem it, he said. Ah. <sighs> Man, that is not what we want to happen. Isn't that ordinary? Isn't that how life is? See, just because God is at work in your life, 
And if you belong to Jesus Christ, He is. He is at work in your life for your good. But just because He is doesn't mean you won't have heart, heart, uh, heartaches. You won't have disappointments. You won't have gigantic problems. Why is that? Well, the short answer is that God is after much bigger and deeper things than giving you what you want all the time. But sometimes, God does give you exactly what you want, even though it seems impossible. So verse 5, then Boaz said, (laughs) by the way, I forgot to mention, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Some fine print that wasn't mentioned at first. At this, the kinsman redeemer said that I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Yes! (laughs) No deal! Boaz gets to be the hero after all. And it's actually very ironic that this other kinsman is never even named in a book that makes a big deal about names we don't know this guy's name and that's ironic because here he's all concerned to protect his own inheritance his own legacy we don't even know what his name was he didn't do anything wrong exactly he just didn't do anything worth remembering he played it safe lesson playing it safe is usually thoroughly forgettable. Verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, so this book is written later, looking back, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, (laughs) one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. So instead of going to the title company and signing a bazillion pieces of paper, you just take off your sandal. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Machlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Machlon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then all the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord, may Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. It's a remarkable statement. A foreigner being put in the same category as the matriarchs of Israel who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring that Yahweh gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. I want you to notice how this emphasizes God using ordinary things. It says the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive. Now conception, pregnancy, childbirth is amazing. 
In fact, it's so amazing we often refer to it as a miracle, but it's technically not a miracle. It's amazing, but it's not a miracle because it happens according to natural laws that God set up, that God established, and it takes human activity. Okay, the sexual union of a man and a woman. But the point is, the point said very explicitly is that God uses that union to create a new human life. Talk about an extraordinary outcome. According to ordinary things. Verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to Yahweh, to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Now these women get it. They're giving God the credit for the birth of this boy. God gets the credit. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. That is another remarkable statement given the culture. Has given him birth. Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. Obed means he serves. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, who you've probably heard about. Wow! I mean, let that just sink in. Ruth! A nobody, a foreigner, an outsider, a refugee from an enemy nation who lost her husband but loved her mother-in-law and put her faith in the one true God. She becomes the great-grandmother of King David and an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God was at work all along bringing about this extraordinary outcome without a single miracle. At least not one that we know about. Isn't that awesome? It's mind-boggling. I said when we started this book, this series... That this book sounds like a script for a Hallmark Channel romance. But the real story is much deeper than that. And one of the deeper things we need to get is the meaning of redeeming love. Redemption. Now, love is everywhere in this book, but I am not talking about romance. I mean, the romance is there. I think Boaz was probably smitten with Ruth and her charming Moabite accent. <laughs> but the thing that drives the relationships in this book is not romance. It's love. Not as culture defines it. 
but a love that is willing to get involved and pay a price to help someone in need. And we see it in chapter 1, where Ruth commits herself to be with Naomi wherever she goes. And she says, I'm not going to let anything but death separate you and me. We see it in chapter 2, where Ruth goes out and just works hard every day. Get up, go out, work, work, work. Why? Love. Love pays the price. We see it when Boaz looks out for Ruth and gives generously to meet her needs. We see it in chapter 3, where Ruth boldly, at the risk to her reputation, asks Boaz to marry her. Not because he's handsome and charming, but because she's thinking of what's best for Naomi. And we see it here in chapter 4 as Boaz steps up and fulfills the role of a redeemer. So we need to look closer at this because redemption, being redeemed is a big, big part of the Bible's message. And what Boaz does for Ruth and Naomi here is a picture, a beautiful picture of what God does for us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, it is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing about God that when He gave us His Word, He didn't just give us a list of rules, a bunch of facts and definitions like a dictionary. He gave us stories. Stories, you know, most of the Bible is what we call narrative. Stories about real events involving real people. And we read these and we get a much richer understanding of what it is God wants us to know. He wants us, He wants us to feel the truth. Not just agree with it in our heads. It's meant to grip our hearts. He wants us to hear His truth and treasure it and to savor it and to delight in it. Never think you've got it nailed with God just because you understand, you agree with the truth. There's a heart reception of the truth and delight in the truth that is the sign of a genuine work of God in our lives. It's one thing to understand. So you say, well, what is love? Well, I can give you a definition. Love is a heartfelt commitment, a heartfelt commitment to the best interests of another. Okay, if you understand that, that's good. But it is a far, far richer thing to see what love is by watching Ruth say to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. And God says, that's love. Look at that. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? God wants us to experience His redeeming love. Not just know about it. So He pictures it for us here with Boaz redeeming Ruth. So we want to press into this beautiful picture. We want to see what it teaches us 
about being redeemed. What does it mean to be redeemed? What do we need to know about it? Well, the first thing we need to know is that we need it. We need to be redeemed. Redeem is not a word we use a lot, unless you're talking maybe about redeeming frequent flyer miles or something. But it's a big deal in God's Word. And when, in the Bible, when redeem refers to people, it means to set somebody free. To set someone free by paying a price. And what the person is set free from could be actual slavery, or it could be just a desperate situation that's like slavery. So in this story, Boaz is redeeming these women from dire poverty by purchasing Naomi's land, by marrying Ruth. It it wasn't just a nice thing he did. They desperately needed it. They needed it. Okay, what about us? Do we need redeeming? Why do we need redeeming? Look at a dialogue Jesus had with some religious people. This is in John chapter 8. Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. So Jesus says, Sin leads to slavery. It makes you a slave. Why? Because you aren't free to experience life the way it was meant to be lived. Because you're separated from God, and God is the source of all that is good. He is the source of life. That's what sin does. It separates. It separates us from God. Look at Colossians 1.21, written to some Christians, reminding them of their past before they were redeemed, once you were alienated from God. Alienated, separated. Separated from the source of life. Separated from all the source of everything good. Now, okay, that doesn't mean that if you're not yet a believer, if you're not yet redeemed, that doesn't mean you never experience good things. Of course you do. Because God's goodness is everywhere in this world, in this life. We all benefit from it, even if we're not in right relationship with God. Jesus said so. He said, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. And because of that, we have no idea of how bad it would be to be utterly separated from God and his goodness. I mean, just try Try to imagine an existence without one good thing in it. You can't do it. But God's Word says a day is coming. A day is coming when that will be the case. 
for those who aren't redeemed. First Thess- Second Thessalonians 1.8 He will punish those who do not know God. Now that's not the... That's not the not knowing of ignorance. That's the not knowing of relationship. I, that's, I, not knowing God is not having a relationship with God. And do not obey the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. If that's your future, you are not free. Now, you might feel free. You might feel free like a guy jumping out of an airplane without a parachute on. He might feel utterly liberated, completely free for a while. But as soon as he realizes what's coming, that feeling of freedom will vanish because it was an illusion. And you might think, oh yeah, it's freedom to not care about God, to be indifferent to God, not pay any attention to God's rules. Yeah, it feels like freedom for a while. But it's not. The religious people Jesus was talking to thought they were free. Hey, what are you talking about, Jesus? We're free. And many Americans think exactly the same thing. I'm free. I'm an American. And Jesus says, no. No, if your life is and your future are under the mastery of sin, you are not free. And you need me to set you free. That's what he says. We need to be redeemed. This book also teaches us about redemption, that we receive it, we do not achieve it. We receive it, gift, not achieve it, merit, deserved. In other words, the one who needs redeeming can't do it. Someone else has to do it for them. And we see that here. Ruth came to Boaz. She asked him to act as redeemer because she couldn't do it. She couldn't marry herself. She couldn't raise up an heir for the family herself. Naomi couldn't keep her land because she couldn't take care of it herself. She needed Boaz to buy it, keep it in the family for her. Okay? When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt... God sent Moses to bring them out. Why? Because they could not get free on their own. They couldn't do it. Deuteronomy 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord Yahweh your God redeemed you. He purchased your freedom. If you need redemption, that means you need a redeemer. You need redemption, you need a redeemer. You need someone to redeem you because you can't redeem yourself. Now, I know sometimes we talk about people redeeming themselves. Usually we're talking about an athlete who had a really terrible game and he comes out next time determined to do better so he can redeem himself. Okay, that's fine. That has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about here. 
This is about being enslaved to a situation that you cannot free yourself from. You need a Redeemer. And a Redeemer can't just be anybody. Boaz had to have the right to redeem. He had to be a kinsman, a relative. He had to have the resources to redeem. He had to be able to pay the price to buy the land. And he had to have the resolve to redeem. He had to be willing to do it. That was the little part about that other guy. First in line, he's got the right to redeem. He's got the resources to redeem. He says, nope, doesn't have the resolve. Okay, when it comes to our slavery to sin, only Jesus, only Jesus has the right to redeem. Hebrews 2.14, since the children, referring to humanity, that's us, since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He became man so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In Jesus, in Jesus, God became man to be our kinsman, to redeem us, to pay the price for our freedom. Jesus has the right to redeem. He alone does. He also alone has the resources to redeem. He offered his perfect life as a substitute to pay our death penalty that we earn because of sin. How could he pay that? Well, because he never sinned. The only one. 1 Peter 1.18 Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. When it says the blood of Christ, that's referring to his sacrificial death as a substitute. He alone could do that. So he's got the right to redeem, he's got the resources to redeem, and that wouldn't help us one bit if he didn't have the resolve to redeem. If he wasn't willing to do it. But he was. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom, a redemption price for many. That's why he came. He came to redeem. So he said, well, you know, he came to be a great teacher. He came to be an example. He came to, you know, okay, there's truth in all of that. But that's not the primary reason he came. He came to pay the price to redeem us, to set us free from sin. And so we can't redeem ourselves, but we have a Redeemer who will do it for us, it's received, it's not achieved. And third, it comes through relationship. Redemption comes through relationship. That is how we experience it. Okay, Jesus died to redeem anyone who will trust Him. 
How do we experience that? Through relationship with him. See, Ruth needed a certain relationship with Boaz to benefit from his redemption. (laughs) She had to say, I do. The same is true for you, for each one of you. To benefit from Jesus and his redeeming work on the cross, you have to say, I do. What does that mean? It means you've got to say to him, yes, I say yes to you, Lord Jesus. I say yes to trusting you to forgive all of my sin and make me right with God. I say yes to trusting you to direct my future, to guide my life from this day forward, for better or for worse, My life is yours. We need a relationship with Him. That's exactly what He offers. John 1.12 To all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That's relationship. In other words, you ask Jesus to come into your life and make you His. Don't misunderstand this part about believing in his name as if that means you've got to have all your questions answered. That's not what that's talking about. To believe in his name is to put your trust in him, to say yes to him. That you have heard enough and you know enough to say Jesus is worthy of your trust. And you receive him into your life. You know, Ruth said, I do to Boaz. He said, I do to her, and it was done. It was done. He's the Redeemer. He came into her life. She said yes to him, and he redeemed her. And that's that's the same with Jesus. Do you know? Do you know you need him? to redeem you? Do you know that apart from Him redeeming you, you have no hope of being right with God and of experiencing eternal joy? Do you know you need the redemption that Jesus alone can give? If you do, do you want Him to? Because he'll change your life. He'll change your priorities. Because they need changing. And it's a lifelong process. But it starts by saying, I know I need you. I know I need you to redeem me. And I want you to redeem me. I say yes to you. Trust him to do it. He will. How do I know? He said so. Romans 10, 13 Everyone, everyone, every single one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the name of the Lord is Jesus. And the reason you must call on Him to redeem you is because He's the one and only Redeemer. He alone has the right, the resources, and the resolve to redeem you.
There's nobody second in line. He makes it happen when you enter into relationship with Him. When you say, I do to Jesus. I want you to bow with me for prayer. I do not know your situation, most of you. I do not know for sure about anybody in this room. For sure, I know many of you have experienced His redemption. There may be someone who hasn't. Maybe someone joining us online, someone here in the room, maybe several, I don't know. And it's not about satisfying my curiosity. It's about you experiencing the redemption that you need and that Jesus alone can give you. See, I don't even know where to start. Admit you need Him to redeem you. And then call on Him. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. It doesn't just mean you say His name. You say, Lord, redeem me. As best I understand it, I'm asking you to do that. I I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I don't deserve eternal life. I don't deserve eternal joy. I don't deserve your favor, but you've said it's a gift, and so I'm I'm saying I want that gift, and that gift is Jesus, the life of your Son. By your Spirit, come into my life, Lord Jesus, and forgive me. You say, I can't keep up with all your words. The words aren't the issue. It says in 1 John that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has the life. The one who does not have the Son does not have the life. The question is, do you have the Son? You can have Him if you want Him. Tell Him you want Him. And I'll be quiet and give everyone an opportunity to pray. And if you have already experienced His redemption, thank Him. And if you haven't and you want to, receive Him. And if you don't think you're ready to do that, then consider the question, why not? What is keeping you from saying yes to Jesus. And if it's a legitimate question, then make a decision to follow up and ask that question. Pray that God will answer every question you have. So I'm going to be quiet. This is time for each one of us to just talk to God. Father, uh, our hearts 
are still heavy today and will be probably for weeks to come. That some we've loved are no longer able to be with us. They've gone. And we grieve that and at the same time, Lord, we ought to be astounded that any of us is still alive and able to be here and hear your word and raise our voices. God, none of us deserves to be here today. And to know that you have provided a Redeemer who willingly paid the price to set us free. Father, if there's anyone here who's just not yet said yes to Jesus, God, bring them to that place, we pray. And Lord, may those of us who know our Redeemer be very much concerned and anxious to share that good news with those who still need to hear. Thank you for this beautiful word you have given us in Jesus' name. Amen.